I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we re-examine what we think we know about good and evil, and then we ask the questions if these ideas might be better understood through a lens of life and death. We're in our 30th episode this week, and if you've been following along all this time, I pray that this experiment has blessed you in some way. For the last few weeks, we've been covering Jacob's experience in exile. When he left home, he was fleeing for his life, escaping the wrath of his brother whom he had deceived. He arrived in Haran with nothing and immediately ran into his future, his future wife and his future father-in-law. Jacob, with nothing to offer but his family honor and his ability with flocks, agrees to work for Levon seven years as the dowry for his daughter. Seven year passes in a flash, and last minute before he is to receive his payment, Levon deceives Jacob and changes his wages from the daughter that he desires to the daughter that he needs, even though no one knows it at the time. But Jacob is understandably upset at this, but what has been done is done, and so he agrees once more to work for yet another seven years for the daughter that he wanted in the first place. Seven more years pass, and this time, it's not the pleasure that it was before. Now, with two wives, he begins to experience the constant struggle for honor that he participated in with his own brother. During this next seven years, Jacob gathers to him, in addition to his two wives, two concubines and twelve children, eleven sons and a daughter. And we should not miss the fact that the first seven years he had nothing. He was essentially unpaid and gained no benefit. But because he persisted in this time of drought, in the second seven years of labor, he gained exponentially. Seven years of famine followed by seven years of plenty. One might say that the increase that he gained in these second seven years was supernatural. From this, we could draw a parallel with the upcoming story of the seven years of supernatural increase followed by seven years of famine. Think on that a bit, but I'm not really going to go any further with that particular line of thought. So there was still a problem. Jacob had many mouths to feed after the seven years of blessing, and yet he still had no real wealth. His situation was still one of poverty, and had he left the first time when he had thought to, he would have left with nothing but his wives and his children. He would have returned home looking for a handout, consuming the property of his father, eating up his inheritance, and inevitably ticking off his brother who had made something of himself. He also would have had nothing to give Esau to appease him as he approaches him in the whole reunion of Jacob and Esau, which we'll read of next week. So as Jacob tries to leave this first time, Levan convinces him to stay and continue to work for him, and a deal is struck and Jacob agrees. Jacob will get the unwanted parts of the flocks, the speckled and the spotted, while Levan will keep the pure stock. 
Now, Laban keeps the letter of the agreement, but once again deceives Jacob by removing his own property from him while he works. I mean, it's sensible enough for a man whose whole paradigm is wrapped up in deceiving others for personal gain. Laban expects Jacob to act in the same way. And frankly, why should he think any different? Jacob's own story demonstrates that he was willing to deceive for personal gain. As far as Levon is concerned, he and Jacob are engaged in a battle of wits. Who can deceive the other better and come out on top while still appearing innocent? Now, this is a very common practice in other societies, especially in the ancient Near East, and even in the Middle East today. Getting one over on your neighbor is expected. Honesty, integrity, those things don't really matter. All that matters is honor. It's winning. Now, this has been a huge deal for Western businessmen as they have come into contact with second world nations, growing economies and businesses. The owners and managers of these second world nations will promise anything knowing that they will never deliver on their promises. For them, it's better to land the deal and to do the bare minimum to keep the contract. Now, what I'm about to read is from one of the myriad of Bible studies that's put out by Tom Bradford of Torah Class. This is a modern example, and it demonstrates this principle perfectly for our purposes today. Now, this is a direct quote from Tom Bradford's Ezra Lesson 19. And I quote, Allow me to share with you a 21st century parable, if you would, as an illustration of this topic, one that I personally experienced and its lesson has had a profound effect on my viewpoint. Several years ago, an acquaintance of mine, a brilliant and highly educated lady, was working for the UN. She was tasked with finding a way to help third world countries to develop by building industries to manufacture goods to sell. The issue that she was immediately faced with was that while many of these countries already had some low-level manufacturing capability, they needed laborers to fill the jobs and had been producing some sellable products. The poverty of their nation meant that there was little to no local market for the things they produced. So who might buy what they made? Their only salvation, then, was to market their products to the much more wealthy Western nations. And this had also been regularly tried, but usually wound up in failure. Why? My acquaintance investigated and found that the overriding failure point was that the Western businesses ultimately couldn't do business with these third world companies, because in the long run they couldn't trust or rely on them to do what they said they'd do, or even to operate in an honest manner. Profit was impossible. There was little work ethic, almost no quality ethic, and bribery, stealing, and embezzling was rampant, if not a given. Thus, well-meaning Western businesses would try but end up wasting millions of dollars before they simply gave up. My friend believed that she had come to understand the core problem, so she wrote a doctoral thesis on the matter, and before she presented it to her mentor, and then to the UN, she brought it to me because along the way she had discussed some of her theories with me, and because once I had told her of a similar experience I had had in my corporate career days, working with a high-tech company in a particular South American country, which I will not name. And that experience is best characterized by an eye-opening meeting I had with the manufacturing VP of this company, when after months and months of failing to produce a viable product of sufficient quality and consistency to sell in the USA, we had a come-to-Jesus meeting. I was exasperated with promise after promise of getting things fixed, only to have nothing happen. I had set up distribution in the USA based on samples and promise of delivery, That never seemed to come, and I couldn't hold that network together any longer without product. Finally, I said to this manufacturing VP, Listen, 
I know that you're a good and capable man. We have agreed time after time exactly what you would do. You said it was no problem, and you haven't followed through with any of it. I don't understand this. I've operated on the basis of a deal is a deal, and I've been left looking foolish. He responded that he didn't understand what I meant by a deal is a deal. Since I was dealing with a non-English speaking culture, I figured it was only a matter of semantics, and he didn't understand the expression. So I explained that the idea is that if we sit down in good faith and come to a mutually acceptable agreement, then each side is morally and ethically obligated to make it happen. He told me that no such concept existed in his country. Rather, it was that A, an agreement at a meeting was always reached because it was the polite thing to do, and that trumped everything, and B, no agreement is ever an agreement in principle. Agreements are merely gracious conversations held as a means to begin to do business, and then a contest gets underway to see who could be the most clever to get all he can from the deal, while necessarily defeating the other party. Thus, all agreements are but contests of cunning, if not outright deceit. But these qualities are seen as good, normal, and admirable in his country. And while he didn't say so, he didn't have to. In his eyes, he was winning, hands down. Very shortly, the business relationship was terminated because I knew at that moment there was no hope of ever making it work. So what was the real issue at play here? It was the one that my acquaintance also understood as the major roadblock for other third world countries. There is no standard business ethic or morality at work in the third world as is generally understood and unspoken among Western nations. Thus, doing business between the Western and Third Worlds is made supremely difficult and usually not worth the trouble. End quote. Now, this is one of the major differences between an honor-shame and a guilt-innocent society. Guilt and innocence requires adherence to the letter of the law. Any deviation in a person is guilty and not worth working with. But an honor-shame, being polite, is the proper thing to do. Fulfilling an order, being honest, none of that matters. Gaining honor from your opponent, whom you happen to be in business with, is primary. All other concerns take second place. Now this will become essential to understanding as we proceed because Jacob is facing this exact same thing in this exact same paradigm. This week, Jacob leaves his place of residence once again, and once again he is fleeing from someone. This time, rather than fleeing from someone who is seeking to kill him because of his own deception, this time, Jacob is fleeing from someone who is himself a deceiver and who is taking liberties with Jacob and endangering his family. Oddly enough, we will read that Jacob, in order to escape this deceiver, must engage in another act of deception. But Jacob is not the same man that he used to be. He has grown and changed. We learn a lot about Jacob's new outlook on life in this Parsha. A change that has occurred in him and brought him closer to who God needs him to be. So as we examine this, we'll find that deception has become something that Jacob is capable of engaging in if needed, but it's no longer his M.O. Wrapped up in this is another story of deception, the deception of a daughter towards both her father and her husband, and the fallout from this episode will not be seen for a few weeks. So let's read this chapter, and as we read, pay attention to the text and see if you can spot the interplay of these ideas that are present in the text. Genesis 31, beginning in verse 3. And Hashem said to Yaakov, Return to the land of your fathers and your relatives, and I am with you. And Yaakov sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock, and said to them, I see your father's face, that it is not towards me as before, but the Elohim of my father has been with me. 
and you know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but Elohim did not allow him to do evil to me. When he said this, the speckled are your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And when he said this, the streaked are your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So Elohim has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And it came to be at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and looked in a dream, and saw the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and mottled. And the messenger of Elohim spoke to me in a dream, saying, Yaakov, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see, all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen all that Lavan is doing to you. I am the El of Bethel, where you anointed the standing column, and where you made a vow to me. Now rise up, get out of this land, and return to the land of your relatives. And Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance with our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as strangers? For he has sold us, and also entirely consumed our silver. For all the wealth which Elohim has taken from our fathers are ours and our children's. Now then, do whatever Elohim has told you. So Yaakov rose and put his sons and his wives on camels, and he drove off all his livestock and all his possessions which he had acquired, his property and the livestock which he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to his father Yitzhak in the land of Canaan. And when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole the house idols that were her father's. And Yaakov deceived Laban the Aramean because he did not inform him that he was about to flee. And he fled with all that he had, and he rose up and passed over the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilad. And on the third day Laban was told that Yaakov had fled. And then he took his brothers with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilad. But in a dream by night Elohim came to Laban the Aramean and said to him, Guard yourself that you do not speak to Yaakov, either good or evil. Then Lavan overtook Yaakov. Now Yaakov had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Lavan with his brothers pitched in the mountains of Gilad. And Lavan said to Yaakov, What have you done that you have deceived me and driven my daughters off like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and not inform me? And I would have sent you away with joy and song, with tambourine and lyre. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have been foolish to do this. It is in the power of my hand to do evil to you. But the Elohim of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Guard yourself that you do not speak to Yaakov either good or evil. And now you have gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my mighty ones? And Yaakov answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Lest you tear your daughters away from me. With whomever you find your mighty ones, do not let him live. In the presence of our brothers, see for yourself what is with me and take it with you. For Yaakov did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Lavan went to Yaakov's tent and into Leah's tent, and into the tents of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he came out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the house idols and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Lavan searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my master that I am unable to rise before you, for the way of women is with me. And he searched, but he did not find the house idols. And Yaakov was wroth and contended with Lavan. And Yaakov answered and said to Lavan, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Now that you have searched all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my brothers and your brothers, and let them decide between the two of us. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your sheep. That which was torn by beast I did not bring to you. I myself bore the loss of it. 
You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages ten times. Unless the Elohim of my father, the Elohim of Abraham, and the fear of Yitzhak had been with me, you would now have sent me away empty-handed. Elohim has seen my affliction in the labor of my hands, and rendered judgment last night. And Laban answered and said to Yaakov, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock, and all that you see is mine. But what shall I do today to these my daughters, or to their children whom they have borne? And now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and it shall be a witness between you and me. So Yaakov took a stone and set it up as a standing column. And Yaakov said to his brothers, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. And Levan called it Yagar Sahaduta, but Yaakov called it Galed. And Levan said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why its name is Galed. So also Mitzpah, because he said, Let Hashem watch between you and me when we are out of each other's sight. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, See, Elohim is witness between you and me. And Levan said to Yaakov, See this heap and see the standing column which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the standing column is a witness, that I do not pass beyond this heap to you, and you do not pass beyond this heap, and the standing column to me for evil. The Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Nahor, and the Elohim of their father rightly rule between us. And Yaakov swore by the fear of his father Yitzhak. And Yaakov sacrificed a sacrifice on the mountain, and called his brothers to eat bread. And they ate bread, and spent the night on the mountain. And Levan rose up early in the morning, and kissed his sons and daughters, and blessed them. And Levan left, and returned to his place. So as we open with this Parsha, it began with a command from God. It's time for Jacob to go home. And how does Jacob respond? Well, he calls a family meeting in the midst of his possession, away from prying ears. Jacob begins by laying out his case, by recounting his story and his relationship with Laban, as his reasons for why leaving is a good idea. His argument is that, in essence, your dad is no longer showing me favor, but God is. Your dad has deceived me ten times now by changing my wages, but God has watched over me. God has caused me to receive bountifully every time your father has changed my wages. He has interceded supernaturally on my behalf to cause what was your father's to pass to me. And then a messenger of God appeared to me and told me that he saw what Laban was doing to me, and that he had watched over me, and that we now needed to get out and go home. I mean, that's a pretty solid argument right there, if you ask me. In essence, God's been watching over me up to this point, as your father has tried to steal everything from us. And now God says, get out. In a rare instance of peace of what we're actually told in Scripture, the ladies agree to this. They say, yeah, dad has treated us deceitfully, as well as selling us, and he has consumed what should have been ours. In fact, what daddy did have is now ours anyway. We have nothing to gain by staying here, so do what God has told you. Now, this exchange in the family dynamic up till now reveals to us the truth of that ancient Bedouin proverb that I've shared here before. I against my brother, my brother and I against my cousins my brother and cousins and I against the world. Now, my brother and I against my cousins is at play here. 
Whatever differences the sisters have, they are united together as a family against the outside force that seeks to harm them, even if that source is another member of their family. So Jacob loads up the family and off they go. As they're leaving, Rachel steals her father's idols, his images, his, in the Hebrew, his tselem. Now this word used here for the household idols is the same word used in Genesis 1 to describe man's relationship to God. In Genesis 1 it says that we are made in the image of God. We are the tselem of God. What Rachel steals from her father here is the images of his household gods. Now it's very common in Near East practice that every household had its own gods that watched over it. And this was the god of the threshold covenant, which we'll, we'll talk about later in Exodus a bit. This was the god of that threshold covenant for that home, or the gods of the particular areas of business that the person was engaged in. Now, this is one of the reasons that hospitality was such a highly honored practice. When someone entered your home, they were entering under the protection of that home's gods. If anything happened to the guest as a result of negligence or inaction of the residents, it would bring shame upon the homeowner, as well as shaming the household god, and that god might not protect you any longer after that. Gods of the day were seen as territorial, and so the stealing of the images was a way of removing Laban's power and protection from his home. She may have even been attempting to gain that power and protection for herself. Now, the story begins a discussion of the role of idols and gods in the ancient Near East which we'll again get into a whole lot more in the book of Exodus. This partial began with Jacob revealing, My God has watched over us, he's protected us, he's blessed us, and appeared to me, and has now given us a command. It continues with Rachel removing from her father his power and protection. The discussion of this topic occurs in the simple fact that Jacob's God had accomplished all of these feats despite Laban's household gods. Hashem had already proven them to be useless chunks of metal or wood. And yet, it's as if Rachel still believes them to have power, and she does not wish her father to have that power. Now, this is not the kind of woman you want to cross. She has demonstrated over and over again this passive-aggressive attitude toward anyone that she sees as a threat. And this spiteful and, frankly, unconscionable action on her part towards her very own father she was abandoning him with no help in her eyes, no succor. She was not just burning bridges with her father. She was actively wishing him to come to harm. Now it is this passive-aggressive deception that gets her in trouble in the end, as we'll see in later chapters. Interestingly enough, though, just after the narrative tells us of Rachel stealing her father's images, the story then tells us that Jacob deceived Laban by not telling Laban that he was planning to leave. Now, this isn't an accusation by anyone, a simple statement of biblical commentary. Once again, we see something that was planned by God being achieved through a deception, and, and this confuses us. Jacob received the birthright and blessing of Esau through deception, something that was foretold by God. Jacob receiving Leah instead of Rachel, something that was necessary for Jacob to have a fertile wife and to have Judah, as well as Levi and all of the other sons of Leah. And now Jacob is escaping Laban without telling of his departure, something that was commanded 
by God. Interestingly enough, though, this will not be the last time that we see human deception being a central part of the execution of God's plan for the world as recorded by Scripture. What we will find as we go on is that Jacob is, in this Parsha, being represented as a man who has learned from his past deception and has become a man of integrity. And yet here on a surface reading, we see him being called out once again as deceptive. Now, I believe that the reason for this is to draw out a stark contrast. Jacob, a man of integrity, still has to resort to deceptive tactics in time in order to thwart those who would seek to do him harm. Now, this move also gains Jacob a head start. It removed Jacob from Laban's home field, and he puts them both in a position where neither has the local advantage. How many days away was the other flock? We read it last week, three days. Well, it takes three days for Laban to discover that Jacob had fled. Presumably, he then returns home the three days' journey, gathered some support, discovered the missing images, and then within a total of seven days, or perhaps seven days added on to those three days, he catches up to Jacob in Gilead. Now, Gilead is a location that's just south of the Sea of Galilee on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, it's in a craggy region of what we would call the country of Jordan today. Jacob was about to enter the land of Canaan when Laban catches up to him. The night before the encounter, however, Laban has a dream in which God tells him to say nothing good or evil to Jacob. Now, this phrase is interesting because we saw it a few months ago. Not only did we see this phrase spoken before, it was spoken by Laban at that time. In Genesis 24, we read of the servant of Abraham going to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. And after the servant gives his story, Laban speaks up and he states in Genesis 24, verses 50 through 51. And Laban answered, Bethuel too, and said, This matter comes from Hashem. We are not able to speak to you either evil or good. See, Rivka is before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as Hashem has spoken. Now recognize the congruence here. In both instances, it was a servant of Abraham that was seeking to leave Haran with a family member of Laban who was to be a wife of the son of Abraham. Now in the past, Laban stood to gain greatly in riches from the will of Hashem, and he accepted it happily. And he stated, I cannot speak good or evil against it if it comes from Hashem. Perhaps Laban's earlier answer was an attempt to appear pious. It was a win-win situation. This appearance of piety and enriching in one fell swoop? Uh, who, who wouldn't worship God if this was the case every time? But in this instance, Laban's losing big time and he's not happy about it. This dream is not a one-off instance. It's as if Hashem is reminding Laban, this thing is from me. Just as before, you should not speak good or evil against what is occurring or against my servant who is taking his bride from your home. Last time, you agreed to the terms because you stood to gain something from it. This time, you will agree to my terms despite what you're bound to lose in this exchange. Now, Laban knows that he has no grounds to stand on as pertains to Jacob leaving. So, he does begin with soothing words. We would have thrown you a party had we known you were leaving. Yeah, okay. You chased me seven days to tell me that I missed out on a great party? Really? 
The last time that Laban threw a party in Jacob's honor, Jacob ended up being deceived and with the wrong daughter. Uh, no thanks, Laban. I don't feel like being taken advantage of again. Besides, we find out later what Laban truly thinks in verse 43. Laban believes that everything that Jacob has still belongs to him. And he reveals in this statement that he would have in fact deceived Jacob once again had Jacob informed him of his departure. Jacob stood to lose everything that God had given him, and so his act of deception is in reality a righteous act. Now imagine if Joseph and Mary, on being told to leave for Egypt in order to save Yeshua's life, had checked in with immigrations and customs along the way. Now there may have come times in the lives of believers where we must engage in deception of those who mean harm, just as in Nazi Germany. Doing so is not a sin in that case. It is the righteous and upright thing to do, as we talked about last week. Well, unlike Jacob, Laban doesn't seem to have changed at all. He's still the deceptive jerk that we all love to dislike. Looking out for number one, even if it means ruining every relationship he has. And that's why I opened with that story from Tom Bradford. The mindset that Tom relates in this story is the same mindset that Laban has. We come to an agreement because it's a polite thing to do. But once that agreement is entered into, then we begin a struggle of one-upmanship where the terms of the original agreement don't really matter. All that matters is coming out on top. Now, I pointed out earlier that Jacob is depicted in this narrative to become a man of integrity in the face of his deceptive uncle. And it's in this middle section that reveals this part of Jacob. Because Jacob has, in a way, he's shifted from a purely honor-shame perspective that he came into Laban's house with, and he's taken on that aspect of guilt and innocence. He's not attempting to put one over on Laban in his dealings with Laban. And these two worldviews clash in this central section of this chapter. Laban was told by God not to speak good or evil regarding Jacob leaving. And we can infer this from the previous place where Laban stated that he could not speak good or evil. But there was a catch. He was not told to speak nothing about his missing property, the things that actually did still belong with him. In fact, the things that Jacob didn't even want, Laban's household images. But they were missing, and they were in Jacob's possession, though Jacob did not know it. And so Jacob, in his integrity of his own heart, he declares that the person with whom the Tselem are found is to be put to death. And then he allows Laban to search all of his belongings to discover anything that Jacob may have stolen. Laban, however, is unable to discover anything, partly because Jacob is being honest. He has nothing of Laban's within his possession, but also partly because Rachel deceives her father about where the idols are truly located. It was completely inconceivable to the ancient mind that a woman might sit on something as precious as an idol while in the way of women. The idol would be completely defiled by such an act, and so Laban doesn't even look. Besides, this is Rachel. This is his good little girl. She would never lie to him. She was on his side, at least in his mind. Well, Laban returns, and now it's Jacob's turn to get angry. He says, what have I done to cause you to pursue me in this way? If you have found anything of yours, put it here before me. I served you 20 years in your flocks and did not deceive you for anything that occurred. If an animal was stolen, I paid for it. 
I endured heat and cold and lack of sleep for the good of your flocks. In my years of service for this payment, you have changed my wages ten times. I have operated towards you with integrity, and you have ever only repaid me with deception. Don't believe me? Well, God judged in my favor last night, and you know it. Now, this is when Laban responds with his claim that everything that Jacob has is truly his, but, oh, woe is me, what can I do about it now? Laban here, he seems to be getting a bit out of touch with reality. He's feeling weak. His idols are gone, and he feels as if he's no longer being protected by them. And Jacob is being blessed by his God, and woe is me. And so he puts on this face of posturing, attempting to save face when on the receiving end of rightfully receiving shame. And we all like to see the bad guy get it. Uh, that is, until the bad guy happens to be us. But when it's us who's being proven to be in the wrong, we come up with all kinds of excuses as to why it had to happen that way. Why what happened had to happen. How dare you point out my fault? The fault is really yours. And this is the human reaction. It's one that causes us to not see things clearly and to make sensational claims of personal righteousness and justice that don't really apply. To assume that we are in the right and to come up with any way to justify what we have done as wrong. Because that's not the godly way. The godly way is to stop and to examine ourselves when our faults are pointed out by others. To question, do they have a point? Is there a validity in their claims? Is protecting my honor worth the consequences of a broken relationship? Is it worth the cost of deluding myself that I am okay, that I am in the right? The fact is, is that we are not all right. When we have an issue that comes up and when others point out the faults that are in our own lives. And so Laban is aware that he's unable to get back what he feels is stolen. But that's not actually stolen. Because he did not claim it when given the chance to present his property that was discovered among Jacob's things. Jacob laid it before him and said, show me here what's yours. And then Laban later says, but it's all mine. This inconsistency here reveals his own short-sightedness. And in response, he proposes that a covenant be made between himself and Jacob, a protection for each other from each other. And now they erect a standing stone and a pile up a heap of stones, and they give each a name to the location. Laban calls the place a witness heap, or in Aramaic, Yagar Sahaduta. Jacob calls the place a heap of witness. In Hebrew, it's Gilead. But they also call it Mitzpah, which means a watchtower. The heaps of witness and the watchtower. Both of the heaps acting as a witness to the terms of the covenant. And when we read of two witnesses, which we're going to read of later on in several places, and we're going to really talk about two witnesses and the many times that we see this particular idea reflected in Scripture. But when we see two witnesses, it does not simply mean two individuals that saw an event and then can recall it for others. We'll see here that two witnesses can also mean two items or monuments that witness to the fact that a particular event has occurred. As long as those witnesses remain, the terms of the covenant stand. So what are the terms of this covenant? 
Jacob is not to mistreat Laban's daughters or to take other women as wives. And neither of them was to pass beyond that point towards the other with evil intent in their heart. Now, as part of a covenant, an animal would have been slaughtered and they would have walked between the pieces of the animal as a symbol of what has been done to this animal may it happen to me if I break the terms of this covenant. And Laban returns home empty-handed. Now, if we consider that the covenant and the fact that the covenant was always thought to be overseen by the personal or national gods of the signatories, in this covenant, Laban was without his own gods. His gods were unable to oversee any part of this covenant, and so Laban is forced to call on Jacob's God as the overseer of the covenant. This is a covenant made in Hashem's name, and no other gods were part of this covenant. Rachel's deception and theft, it worked out so that Laban had no god on his side from his point of view with which to ensure this covenant. I don't think that's insignificant. Jacob then continues on alone, and then we get into the next chapter. Now, in reality, this partial was to go two more verses into the next chapter. I'm just going to stop it here because the opening of that next chapter actually bears a lot of weight on what occurs in the rest of the next chapter. So let's look back over this chapter and ask, what can we learn from all of this? Well, one thing we can find is that acting deceptively isn't always an error or evil. And we find examples of that all throughout scripture. Uh, Tamar actively deceived Judah in order to produce his heir, and she is defined as righteous in the pages of scripture for that very action. Joseph deceives his brothers by not sharing his true identity with them in order to test their motivations and attentions. Rahab tells the guards in Jericho that she had not seen the spies of Israel that had already left Jericho when they were hiding on her own roof. Jael deceives Sisera by offering hospitality in a hiding place as he ran from Barak's army in Judges 4. But then she takes a stake and drives it through his head and kills him. David asks Jonathan to knowingly deceive his father as a test of Saul's intentions in 1 Samuel 20. David deceives the Philistine king while living among them in 1 Samuel 27, by attacking the enemies of Israel, but then reporting back to the Philistines that he was in fact attacking Israel. And the list goes on and on and on. So what constitutes a deception? How do we reconcile this recurring fact within the stories of the heroes of Israel and admonitions such as these, such as Proverbs 12:22, Lying lips are an abomination to Hashem, but those who deal truly are his delight. Or Proverbs 6, 16-19, These six matter Hashem hates, and seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart devising wicked schemes, feet quick to run to evil, a false witness breathing out lies, and one who causes strife among others. And the dozens of other Bible verses out there that have a bearing on false witness and deceiving your neighbor, deceiving people? Well, frankly, I'm not sure. I I really don't know that I can define it cleanly yet. But just getting to the point of recognition of that deception isn't always wrong, or doesn't always seem to be wrong, and seems to be in God's plan sometimes, then the corollary that Scripture itself says, don't do it, I, I, it's taken me just a week to come to terms that that is even something that's in existence. But there has to be a defining line between this, a place where we can look to discover when it's okay to deceive. 
Now, perhaps it's something similar to an accurate definition of righteousness, being solely centered around covenant, or good being solely founded in the continuation of life and order. Uh, I, I don't know just yet, because I was always taught, and I myself have taught, that all lying is a sin. Uh, but the simple fact of the number of times that righteous people engage in deception in Scripture, it shines a light into the truth that this is not as clear-cut as we want to make it. None of this seems to be as clear-cut as we want it to be. And that should both comfort us and cause us to pause and to reflect. Because the simple fact reveals the truth that living the Torah as Yeshua did requires an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our own understanding is limited, and it wishes for that clear definition. And I'm trying to work on one that will fit, and maybe I'll find it, maybe I won't. But the fact remains that there are times in life when acting in deception is a trait of living with integrity. It's something called cunning or trickery at times. And knowing and defining this line is something that will take time. But it's something that I think needs to be examined every time that the option arises to tell the truth or to lie. The vast majority of the times we should land on the side of absolute truth. But there is an allowance for deception. And if we look at the times in scriptures when those times might be, I, I suspect that we'll find that the defining line is somewhere along the lines of life and death. And now I can't yet provide a definition, even for myself. And so we are left with a prayer and a plea. That is, God, give us the wisdom to discern where that line might be as we dare sky. As we seek life, help us to know where that path, that narrow path lies. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.